Welcome to episode 16 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am your co-host, Mary, and joining me tonight is the amazing Darren Weeks. <laughs> Ooh, amazing. Thank you so much, Mary. I appreciate being amazing. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing pro. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's a nice rainy, crappy day out, but it's yeah. okay. It's the, it's the first of December. Only 650 days left to 2020. <laughs> hopefully we'll get a little bit better. So anyway, so yeah, it's been a good time. Had a great Facebook Live the other day. Technical difficulties yep. notwithstanding. Which I think I but got it, that shit sorted out on my computer. I deleted yeah, I a lot what of you stuff. And... Up. I know you deleted up your computer. That'll yep. create, a lot, create a lot of space for you. <laughs> Hopefully you won't have any neighbors blowing your, the leaves of the lawn at 2 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning. That was. <laughs> oh my God, I can lose my mind today. This is a very tense podcast, I think, Mary. I don't know why. <laughs> I had a snow day today. I know you did. Personally. Did you go outside and play in the snow? Did you build, mm-hmm. some, did you build a snowman? <laughs> thought about it i'm sorry a snow person snow person no i did not I because i decided to use my time to finish up show notes that i take for our podcast tonight oh some people repair without having to have a snow day i actually worked today yeah. i didn't stay home all day <laughs> dude it's snowing i don't want to drive <laughs> i gave it anyway. an effort you certainly, you know, you gave it the old try. You gave it the old try. Yep. You made it almost, you made it almost two miles up the road, but it's okay. But you got back and you know, it's all, no. all matters. You're safe that you avoided that yep. snow. So what are you drinking tonight before we get into Ooh. our episode? Well, I, considering we're talking about arguably the bloodiest battle, well, not arguably, we'll talk mm. in details about it. The Battle of Franklin, I'm drinking Death Metal Triple IPA from the great Trillium Brewery here in fantastic boston massachusetts nice. and i'm drinking it out of our company mug the civil war breakfast club very nice david and alexis civil war breakfast club mug so here's to you very nice well cheers, cheers nobody can you, see Fincher. that but we are like we are toasting each other so i am drinking hot major which is by square brew which is a brewery here in my hometown of godrich it is a double ipa it's eight percent and i'm drinking out of my george henry thomas mug because that's as close of a link as i could get to the battle of franklin he was the rock of plymouth right Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Different battle. Different battle. But hey, speaking of battles, Mary, we had a fantastic podcast last week. We finished up the Battle of Chattanooga. Yep. You know, we had so much fun in the West, we decided just to stay out there the entire time. And so today we're going to talk about another battle, which is uh, very timely, I think, considering Mm -hmm. yesterday was the anniversary. It was the Battle of Franklin that we'll be discussing tonight. This is kind of a brutal one. I mean, we're going to, it's more mm-hmm. kind of brutal. When we talk about the whole battle, they say arguably quotation fingers, it's the worst disaster for the Rebs on the war. I think it's more than arguably. I think it absolutely is. It, and we've, it, we've talked it about is. this off and on. It is. Right? Just if you read the accounts of the soldiers that are fighting there, and some of these soldiers, they've been veterans since Shiloh. Some of them were at Gettysburg. Some of them were in, at Antietam. And they said they had never seen anything like what they experienced at Franklin before. The 30th of November, 18, 1864 in Franklin, Tennessee. We'll talk about the details in a bit. You know, they call it the Pickett's Charge of the West, which mm-hmm. I think is really an insult to it. Because it is. Pickett's Charge was a drop in the bucket compared to this one. I mean, this was the largest number of casualties in the shortest period of time. Five hours on American soil. Worse than the cornfields at Antietam. Mm-hmm. It's worse on the wheat field at Gettysburg. It's worse than Cold Harbor. Yeah, that five-hour period is the bloodiest span in American history. That's just the facts. That's even a math major like you could figure that one out. It just goes to show how how it is, and the reason why was it's just a series of frontal assaults. Picture two boxers just standing there, just swinging and swinging and swinging. Mm-hmm. You know, we've said this. You know, we've talked off and on this week about this. I've always felt Franklin was such an unnecessary battle. The war was basically over at that point. And all, when I think of Franklin and you look at the carnage and the overall just loss of life, it is such a waste. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's just so troubling when you read the accounts of some of these things because it never should have happened. It never, ever, ever should have happened. It was just a, and we'll talk about this as we go about why. Just hard to go through all this stuff and look at this when you realize it should have been avoided. I absolutely agree from what I was reading, just how things played out and all that. Yeah. And just with the the deaths that happened of just the number of officers that are killed here. In some way, Hood was trying for some last ditch effort, but, you know, at the same time, it was completely unnecessary, as you said. But I think we have to go back a little bit to Mm -hmm. Atlanta the fall of Atlanta and Mm -hmm. the battle of Franklin is part of the Franklin Nashville campaign, which goes from September to December 27th, 1864. And it starts after the fall of Atlanta. 
and it's also happening while Uncle Billy is, is going through Georgia on his march to the sea. It involves the Army of Tennessee, which is led by John Bell Hood. His commanders are Cheatham, Stephen D. Lee, Alexander P. Stewart, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and he's also got Pat Claiborne there. On the Union side of things, you have the Army of Cumberland led by General Thomas. Schofield is leading the Army of Ohio with David Stanley, and you also have Jacob Cox and James H. Wilson, who is leading the cavalry at this time, and he's got 34,000 men. But in addition to that, he's also got another 26,000 scattered around Nashville. So just, you know, paint the picture. So Atlanta happens. Johnson is replaced by John Bell Hood, Kentuckian, by the way, originally John Bell Hood. People think he's from Texas, but he's actually from Kentucky. He takes over Atlanta, and he's got this aggressive mindset he kind of always has his body tends to fall apart with every battle it's just the way it is but it shows his aggressiveness so after atlanta sherman and his band his band of army guys just sitting right in the town of atlanta basically hood has a decision to make so he's basically trying to decide what he should do you know he ends up getting a visit paid to him by jefferson davis mm-hmm. and they kind of mix up a little bit they take hardy away from him hood actually threatens or doesn't threaten to but he actually offers to resign yeah. For some reason, but, but Davis doesn't have it. So he's like, well, what you really should try to do is originally try to stay behind Sherman. Just try to take snipes at his, at his rear guard and, and just kind of slow him down that way. He's just going to do something different. So he's just not going to do it. He is going to take his army and he's going to go to Nashville. That's what he wants to do. Nashville for the last two previous years has been the union center for supplies. It's the beginning of the rail hub that connects to Chattanooga that goes right to Atlanta and goes right right to the west, right to the east, I mean. So he figures if he can get there, he can take that city, he's going to completely scuttle Sherman's plans. We'll find out later that it was completely moot mm-hmm. because of the March to the Sea, but that's, yeah. that's okay for now. Nashville is not really controlled by that many people. It's about 8,000 guys, but it is well entrenched by George Thomas. And so he's going to basically... He's going to take his army. He's going to go because he feels as vulnerable. And frankly, he's pissed. He wants to redeem himself. He's, he got pantsed completely by Sherman. Yep. He gave up Atlanta and he feels responsible for it. Now he's placed in charge and he obviously wants to redeem himself. And so this is after, after Gettysburg, obviously we lost an arm. It's after Chickamauga where he lost a leg mm-hmm. and got his other arm damaged. So he's, he ain't doing too good, man. You know, yeah, he's basically sacrificed himself on the altar of the Confederacy, and he is Ooh. expecting his men to do the same thing. Wow, that's, someone should coin that phrase. <laughs> wow, you should put that on a Hallmark card. <laughs> but anyway, so he starts to march to Nashville. He's going to take a walk. He's going to go to Nashville. The Army of the Ohio, led by John Schofield from New York, he's been deployed to Tennessee to try to stop him. Mm. He's going to try to just kind of just kind of ding him a little bit. He has his own supply issues that slow him down. Schofield's army was kind of scattered, disorganized as well. What he wants to do is he wants to join Thomas and reunite in Nashville. Thomas basically says, listen, you need to get up here. But before you get here, you want to try to get that Frank, that Franklin area and just get to that hard path, that river, and just kind of stay there. Mm-hmm. And you want to play defense. So you, but you want to get up here. The opposite is what Hood wants. Hood does not want him to connect with him. He wants to beat him before he gets there. So the race is on. Yeah, and that's where you have a series of battles that make up the the Franklin-Nashville campaign. So you have Battle of Alatona on October 5th, Resaca on October 12th, and then Hood goes into Alabama to reassess the strategy. And then you have Forrest raiding in western Tennessee between October 16th and November 16th. There's the Battle of Decatur on October 26th to 29th, the Battle of Columbia on the 24th. And finally, that leads us to Spring Hill on November 29th. And just just to let our listeners know, we will be covering this campaign more in depth at some point. We've just chosen to focus on a little bit on Spring Hill, but not too much, but mainly on the Battle of Franklin and just what it means in the whole Civil War. But you see, you focus on a couple of things we should mention, though, Columbia, first of all. Mm -hmm. I see this campaign, I sort of see it like Roadrunner, that cartoon. Yep. Where Hood is chasing Schofield and yep. he just gets him within reach and then he loses him. And it happens over and over and over again. So he finally catches Schofield at Columbia trying to get across the Duck River. They must have had ducks. That's why they call it the Duck River. So I wanted to call it something else. Oh, shock. But anyway, so Schofield is basically gets some pontoon boats set up over the Duck River. And he gets over that bridge and maybe about an hour before Hood, he just, Hood just misses him. So now Hood is pissed. So he's already starting to get mad because he sees him and just loses him. And it's mm-hmm. going to be the, it's going to be a repeating thing now. So he pursues him and now we get to Spring Hill and he gets him again. 
Now, before we get into the details of Spring Hill, we have to talk a little bit about the weather. This is Tennessee. This is late November. The weather is kind of unpredictable. It goes from the mid-40s to sleet, and it's cold, and it's muddy. It's just shitty. It's just, it's just a bad, bad time. These soldiers are tired of marching in the cold weather. Yeah. On both sides, but especially Hood's guys. So he gets there. Just imagine these guys marching in slow weather, just the cold. Just, you can just picture how it's going, carrying all their gear, kind of like you shoveling off the car today, I imagine. Pretty much just kind of how that, that – that's probably what the Confederates probably were going through. That was – I don't ever want to do that again, but I know I'm going to because of where I live. Well, that's right. That's right. So Schofield, he gets to Spring Hill, and he's, he knows he's vulnerable to attack. He's spread out. Yep. He's kind of all over the place. And this is the 29th of, of November. So this is really where Hood screws up, at least the second time. But this mm-hmm. is the big one. This is the Spring Hill fiasco. So he gets there. He knows his guys need sleep. He knows you're tired. Nathan Bedford Forrest is saying, just give me some infantry. I can get these guys right now. He's like, no, no, no. These guys have been marching. Let them get their sleep. We'll bag these guys in the morning. As history will show, while he was sleeping, Schoolfield basically gets up in the middle of the night and he's yeah. in ditches. He gets the hell out of Dodge. So while yeah. they slept, the army literally passed by the sleeping rebels within gunshot. They just walked right by. But they left in a mad rush. I mean, yeah. they left wagons and gear and shit all the way from Spring Hill all the way to Franklin. It's really the, series, the beginning of a lot of mistakes by Hood. You know, Hood, I mean, he's someone who, a really good soldier, obviously a very questionable general. Hood is one of these men that is like Burnside or Hooker, where you're better off in a lower level of command. When you're in command of an entire army, you struggle a little bit more, I think. Well, sometimes the best players don't make the best coaches, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's the same, same concept. Yeah. So picture John Bell Hood. He wakes up. He's getting ready to go bag Schofields, and they're gone. So you know what it is? Now he's pissed. I mean, he's legit mad. That fabulous quote, he was wrathy as a rattlesnake. <laughs> I love that. He, now he's got the old burr in his saddle. Now he's hell-bent. Now because he lost him at the Duck River. Now he lost him in an embarrassing style here over at Spring Hills. Now he's like, I'm getting these fucking guys. I don't care. We're going, we're getting them. So he basically is like, you know what? We're going to send the whole damn army at him. We're going to go, we're going to get him now. We have to get him before he gets through through Franklin. He's going to go about Harpath River. We're never going to see him again. Now is our time. He thought that because maybe the fast exit from Spring Hill, he would get to Franklin and and probably wouldn't have time to prepare. Didn't think that he'd have the gall to finally get ready to go. So he figured now is the time. So let's mm-hmm. go and get him. His generals don't like it, but that's what he's doing. He's blaming his subordinates, though, for what happened. So he, and he specifically singles out Cheatham in this meeting he has with Cheatham. And he says, this is on you, especially on Claiborne and Brown. His best player is Claiborne, probably. And he's saying that this is his fault. When Cheatham told this to Claiborne, Claiborne was really bothered by that. And I'm wondering now if that played into some of how Claiborne was at Franklin, that he was like, I need to prove this shouldn't be on me kind of thing. And no, no, I don't think it like absolutely it. should have been on the subordinates no, at all. No, of course. I mean, first of all, you know, there's a little phrase, the buck stops here, right? Yeah. Hood, better for worse, he's the guy. His, his name is on the marquee. So Patrick Claiborne probably felt pretty good about himself since Chattanooga. He's been doing really, really well. Yeah. It was almost like a football team is going into a game tomorrow and he, the, the coach tells the press, well, we're probably going to lose, but it's going to be my quarterback's probably going to suck. That's yeah. how Claiborne must have felt. Kind of basically laying the groundwork for excuses already because he yeah. knew it was going to be brutal. I mean, he, he had to have known. Absol- right? Absolutely, yeah. And this is like Spring Hill is a complete breakdown of communication. But as you said, they head to Franklin where they're going to face a full frontal assault. So already mm-hmm. this is bigger than Pickett's charge. <sighs> Nothing scarier than full frontal, Mary. <laughs> You know, <laughs> but Schofield's got there the night before. He, he arrives at, I think, about what, 4 a.m.? He gets there right around dawn, so yeah. whatever time that was. But so he gets there about dawn, about, about dawn o'clock, is what yeah. we'll call it there, okay? And he immediately begins building these defensive preparations, the breastworks. Now, he's lucky because there was a previous battle there in April of 1863, so there were kind of ready made breastworks still, yeah. so it didn't have to start from scratch, like mm-hmm. Culp's Hill or Chattanooga or anything. They just, they had, some ready-made stuff. So they're digging in. So they're back to the Harpeth River, for one. First thing he notices, Schofield, that is, is those bridges are gone. So he's having engineers fix those bridges because he knows the reality is win, lose, or draw, they're going to need those bridges to get to Nashville. Yeah. So he's going to have them work on them. In the meantime, he's going to place his army in a, sem- a semicircle south of Franklin. Picture left to right, you're going to have Nathan Kimball. 
uh, followed by Thomas Ruger, and then James Riley. You're going to have those divisions going right across. This is the 23rd and the 4th Corps. Basically, you're going to have a center point being Carter House. We'll talk some more about the formations, but some things that are interesting about this battle, okay, is this was an infantry battle. The cavalry was limited. We talked before about the, the Union had James Wilson, and the Rebs had Nathan Pepper Forrest. But the terrain and the rivers were very limiting, not to mention the number of guys in a short period of place. So there wasn't a lot of space for them. The other issue is the artillery. Now, artillery is always the, the great equalizer in these battles, but mm -hmm. the Union had two batteries from Nashville, yep. all they had. And they were positioned over at Fort Granger, which was the headquarters of Schofield. The Rebs had very few of them because they needed to keep up with Schofield, and that was slowing them down. So they left them and they were just going forward. So what you have here is you have an infantry mano a mano battle. It's going to get pretty ugly as we'll, as we'll find out. But Schofield's going to dig in. He's going to make Carter House basically his command center, which is going to be Jacob Cox's headquarters ultimately. And he's going to dig in. He's going to wait for Hood. One thing to mention too, going back to Pickett's Charge thing, is the Confederates at Pickett's Charge did, what was it, a 90-minute artillery barrage? It was two hours. There's nothing like this going on at Franklin. Might get some hate over this. I'm not sure. I'm going to say this isn't really like Pickett's Charge just for that reason, because you can't, you're not comparing apples to apples. Well, at Pickett's Charge, the Rebs had 147 cannon. Yeah. Okay. The Union had 122. Mm -hmm. So that's 269 guns for two hours going at each other to set up the infantry. You had none of that. Yeah. So you had infantry on infantry, full banana with no artillery support whatsoever. Yeah. You got to mention again, the topography. You know, I've not been to Franklin, Italy. You've know, you got two roads. You get the Carter Creek Pike going in one direction. But then what you have is these fields where you get the river. Dare I say you have undulations, Mary? <laughs> Right? I read that. Remember I sent that to you last you night? You did. That's why I said that. <laughs> it's like, fuck you undulations. Know? You have undulations. The other one is the Columbia Pike. So it's like you have these two roads and the soldiers are in between them with all the undulations in between. That's pretty much the setup. So yeah. you've got Schofield mm -hmm. dug in. You've got very little artillery. You've got very little cavalry. And what you basically have, the Union sitting back, this time on defense, in a mm -hmm. very strong fortified position, waiting for John Bell Hood with a, something up his ass looking for a fight. And, and that's where Hood has a meeting with his commanders. Now, before that meeting, they arrive close to where the battle is going to take place. And Claiborne, admittedly, probably is not feeling very good at this point, you know, about what has happened the day before, because he's the one being blamed for it. The one thing we wanted to do when we set out with this podcast is both sides, we wanted to humanize them. We wanted to make them... Mm -hmm more human to people and all that. So Claiborne, when they arrive, it's kind of some downtime. So he finds a stick and he finds some dirt and he draws a checkerboard. And apparently he must've carried the pieces with him and he called one of his staff over and they are playing a game of checkers when Hood has sent a messenger to Claiborne and has said, you need to come meet with me. Keep in mind, this is a few hours before Claiborne is going to die. So the, one of the last things that he does as you know, not as a soldier, but as a human, is play checkers. And this goes to show the Confederates are playing checkers, the Union's playing chess. <laughs> they're, they're they're ready. They're you know they're they're pinned back, but it does it does humanize them. Ready, but but just him going to that meeting, he's probably like, oh fuck, this is gonna, this is not this is not going to be good because he and Cheatham had I think they either speak before or after this. Claiborne actually says to him, "This will be a terrible and useless waste of life." At the meeting with Hood, Claiborne is quiet. He only says this to Cheatham. It's either before or afterwards when they see each other. But Hood says in this meeting, we will make this fight. Forrest is there and he protests. He says no. And this is when he goes back to this, his whole, no, no, no. Give me one good division and I'll take my cavalry and I'll mm -hmm. drive them. I'll drive them to Nashville. And Hood is like, we're not driving them to Ma Nashville. We're going to fucking annihilate them and wipe them off the battle map. Like he's got it in his head now that this, for whatever reason, has to happen. Cheatham also says that i do not like the looks of this fight and then he finishes the enemy has an excellent position and is well fortified so they knew i mean this is late in the war this is not rookies here these these dudes have seen it all they've yeah. seen everything so they know what they're in for right off the bat and, and that's what they get i mean schofield you know he's going to set up his headquarters over the truett house but he's going to spend most of his time at that fort granger which is across the harpeth river but that's where the artillery is so he ends up being in a pretty strong safe position to watch and this is where it gets kind of, you know, this is where you see a little controversy start moving a little bit because, you know, um, Stanley's Fourth Corps, he's going to move Wagner's division, who is the last to arrive on the battlefield, about a half a mile in front. And they kind of make, 
a quasi salient sort of with basically going to ultimately have uh, two brigades with John Lane and Joseph Conrad are going to be there. Cameron Opdyke is supposed to be there. He's got different plans. So Stanley tells Wagner, division commander, to hold this. This is where it gets a little confusing. He says, hold this position until dark. That's what he says. And dark yeah. isn't that long away. It's a couple hours. For whatever reason, Wagner hears, hold this position at all costs. And Wagner's like, are you shitting me? This, this is like, no, you know. So Opdyke hears this and he goes, you know what? I'll be seeing you. He goes back behind the union lines. He sees what's potentially coming. And that's a mistaken order right there. Again, communication where you're only supposed to be out there for a couple hours. He thinks they're going to stay out there. Opdyke apparently decides he doesn't want to do it. We'll hear about him here in a little bit. But it sets up a really ugly situation at the beginning for the union is what it does. This is when Claiborne meets back with his men, including a man named Daniel C. Govan. And he commanded the Arkansas Brigade of Claiborne's division. Claiborne tells him the orders are to carry the works of the enemy at all hazards and then move on the flank and until they come under fire. And then they're just supposed to just charge. So they're supposed to just keep marching towards the, the Union Army. Well, once they start getting fired at, that's when they're supposed to, to do their thing. And they're supposed to use their bayonet to take the works. And Govan, he salutes Claiborne. And Claiborne looks at him and says, well, Govan, if we are to die let us die like men. They knew. They and, knew. So. And prior to this, he has said to Hood, like Hood gives him his orders to move his men forward. And Claiborne says to him, I'll take those works or I will fall trying. Like Claiborne, like he, he had, he, I mean, they, they do, but you know, Hood, you know, he gets in, he gets, he gets to Winstead Hill, which is, which is south of this, of the city. Probably around one o'clock or so, one, one thirty, two o'clock, depending on what time, you know, you, whoever you listen to. These guys are tired. They're cold. They've had about six hours of sleep in the last two full days, these Confederates. They know this battle is going to be absolutely brutal. But Hood, to your point, he says, let's, we got to go full, we got to go full frontal attack. This is probably now you're looking at maybe four o'clock or so. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. is where it gets kind of, this is where the Hood thing, you know, I, you get that he's, he's seeing the union in his mind, a vulnerable, vulnerable position because they just got there. Maybe it reminds me a lot of Yule at Cemetery Hill. Yep. Maybe hit them before they get entrenched. Yep. And so this is, maybe that's what Hood's thinking. Who knows? But he basically orders a frontal assault. He's only got about 45 minutes left of life, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is probably 4, 4.30 or so. It's November, so it gets dark. His generals you know, aren't liking that too, too much. He honestly feels that I need to hit Schofield before he can strengthen his fortifications. He just thinks that now is the time to do it because he's so afraid of Schofield getting through Franklin and getting to Thomas and Nashville. I just think he really wants to prove himself after Atlanta yeah. and he wants to bag the big fish. And, and this is where, you know, his aggressiveness is probably going to get him to your point. He's going to order Cheatham's army and Stewart's guys in Cheatham is going to be on the left. Stewart's going to be on the right. He's going to take Nathan Bedford Forrest Cavalry and he's going to split them on both flanks. So he's going to, he's going to basically take the left and the right of Chalmers and Jackson and his other guys. He's going to put them on the, on the ends, uh, just what the cavalry is supposed to be. You always want to be at the end of the army. He's going to send them in. They're going to run through Wagner's guys pretty quick. So Wagner's, those two brigades are pushed out. Conrad and Lane are going to get pushed back pretty quickly, pretty easily. They're not going to stand much of a chance. It's about 3,000 guys going up against the full four, you know, the entire Confederate Army of Hood. Mm-hmm. They're going to fall back pretty quickly to Columbia Pike. They'll lose about 700 guys just by being captured alone. And they're going to be literally chased right to the Union breastworks. So we pushed almost full speed now that the Union center is basically attacked by Claiborne and French and those guys. It's going to certainly weaken that middle. It's going to make that very, the middle part of that, of that line very, very, very vulnerable. Yeah. And that's what's referred to as the breakthrough, right? Yep. That they have. And that's when Opdyke comes into play is when he sees that happening. He takes matters into his his own hands. He just is like, I got to do this. And his commanding officer actually walked by him. I believe it was David Stanley was the commanding officer. And he said, I gave the colonel no orders as I saw him engaged in doing the very thing to save us to get possession of our line again. So he's joined with the reserve elements of Riley's division, the 12th and 16th Kentucky, and survivors from Wagner's division, as you just explained. Some of them run back. Ultimately, at the end of the day, they manage to seal this breach, but it is some of the most horrific fighting in order to do it. Emerson Updike, interesting guy. I mean, he's from Ohio, Mm -hmm. but no one's perfect. His father fought in the War of 1812. His grandfather fought in the Revolutionary War. 
he's got a little bit of hero in his blood, I guess. And, and link it up with those 12 and the 16th, the Kentucky boys will plug that gap in the center. I think that's one of those things where people study it. And I think they've realized that what would have happened if it didn't happen is you would have split up Schofield's army right down the middle, right up the middle. You would have gone right from that gap. Yeah. So what Updike did is really stabilize that middle. Yeah. And some people don't agree with that, but I think that's pretty, co- I think it's pretty obvious. I, what he I did. think, I think that's exactly what he did with like, you know, he stabilized the middle He's fighting on Snodgrass Hill at Chickamauga too. And that's, I posted a photo on my my Twitter account of the monument, which they were called Opdyke's Tigers. So he's there too. So his men just, they're probably accustomed to doing stuff like this. Like we got to make this happen and prevent the the rebs from, from getting through here. But yeah, and this is also where the Missouri Brigade is, right? Yep. This is where it gets really ugly too. Because yep. you got to figure, you know, it's getting darker out. It's sleet, sleety. Is that a, is that a word? Yeah, sleet. Okay, so sleety word? Okay. But regardless, it's muddy, it's crappy, it's dark. You know, this is really when the hand-to-hand fighting at Carter House is really going to get away, right? So yeah. you're going to have guys hitting with axes, picks, you know, rocks, tridents, rifle butts, whatever they get their hands on. They're going to be so close to each other, and they're going to be covered in mud, they can't just distinguish one from the other. There's also so many guys so close together, they can't, they just can't fire. So it turns into literal mono a mono hours of fighting around this carter house and around these union breastworks you know guys like john c brown you know we'll hear about later on because yeah he didn't make it yeah you know his division took heavy heavy casualties it's just an ugly ugly battle and think of like gettysburg with like this echelon attack mm-hmm. right where you send in wilcox and you send in lane and you send in ambrose right you send in Posey, and you send in mahal it's not it's not like that this is all hands on deck now right yeah. so this is going on it moves on to the right side of the Columbia Pike. And now you're going to have Claiborne and French and Walthall starting to move in. Yeah. And that, this is actually where pretty quickly they think it was within about 20 minutes that Claiborne gets shot and killed. He does. He ends up getting right into the cotton gin. Basically what happens is they're going to hit James Riley's brigade along with casements on, on that left-hand side. Claiborne, we'll talk about him in a little while in more detail, but he's going to get killed along with 14 of his regimental commanders. There are going to be casualties. And a big part of it is, is some of these Union guys, like we were talking about at Chickamauga, they had Spencer Peters. Yeah. There were guys from the 12th Kentucky and 65th, 65th Illinois who had a gun called Henry Rifles. There was 350 men who had these. These are 16-shot lever-action rifles. They could mm-hmm. shoot 10 shots per minute, some yeah. of these Union guys. Some of these Confederates have already gone up against weapons like these in previous battles as well just to give you an idea of what it's like here there's a quote i found from a guy that was in the missouri brigade captain james cinnamon um he said it seemed to me that the air was all red and blue with shells and bullets screeching and howling everywhere over and through us as we rushed across the cotton field strewn with fallen men so as he's going in there's already dead that they're running over so that's this battle the one thing to take away from it it's absolute carnage it's horrible. It is. And it's almost like th- what's interesting about Franklin, Mary, is that a lot of the battles remind you of different battles. We've, we've already referenced yep. a handful already. But, you know, when Alexander Stewart's guys go in, okay, and they're going to be attacking the Union left. You mentioned Claver, but, all, you know, French and Walthall, and also Loring, who apparently found himself after Vicksburg. He disappeared off the planet. And now he's back. <laughs> so now he's back, okay? So Loring's back. You've got a lot of troops, and because of the, the topography again, undulations notwithstanding, Mary. <laughs> And a small rolling hills, um, rolling. Okay, you know what? But again, think of a bigger version of Ball's Bluff now, right? Where you got a bunch of guys elbow to elbow, and they can't move. Imagine that. So you're trying to charge against this heavily defended breastworks, and now you're you're just you're in the subway, right? Yeah. Remember I mentioned those two artillery batteries over there in Fort Granger. Yeah, as, as you point. As, as I point. They're over there. Can you see them? Okay. So I'm pointing at Fort Granger, okay? So those guns start firing. So now the artillery is coming down because this is on the right side of the Confederate line, which is the closest to the artillery. So they're getting hit by those batteries. They're also running into those Union abatis in the trenches that, that are right there. Loring, the North Carolina guy, he's on the right. They're starting to get hit by canister already right off the bat because they are the closest what does Loring's troops do? They turn and they YOLO it. What this? Yeah, right? there, there was then, a few of them that did that. And Loring says that famously he stands up and he yells, great God, am I commanding cowards? That's what he yells. <laughs> and they looked at him and basically said, yep. And you know what he does? He does like Augustus Van Horn Ellis at Gettysburg, Mary. He jumps on his horse and he's going to show personal leadership and inspire his troops. He jumps on the horse to show leadership, doesn't get hit. But you know what happens? 
the guys take off anyway. Oh, fuck. That's so right? frustrating. And so, so he, hey, you know what? He, he At least you tried. So, yeah, like I did today <laughs> driving to work. And so they, they do fall back. Next to Lauren, right to Lauren's left is Edward Walfall. We talked about him at Chattanooga last yep. week. He made six different attacks. Every single one, one of them was repulsed right after the other. Yeah. One of his brigade commanders, a guy named William Quarles, actually got past the earthworks. But could but he got there and was pinned and he was just stuck. Yeah. There's one story where a soldier said he was laying on the grass on his back looking up at the sky and all he could see was bullets flying, which I don't know how that's possible, especially that's, at night, but we'll go with it. Okay. Oh, that's crazy. Walthall's advance was apparently done under the most deadly fire of both small arms and mm-hmm. artillery that I have ever seen troops subjected to. That's what one person said about it. And another one said that I can't see how any human being could live two minutes in such a place. And that was a lieutenant with the 43rd Mississippi. I mean, where they were was pure hell on earth. The right side or the east side of Columbia Pike, that was all within range of the artillery. There's only two batteries. It wasn't like you're talking about those 147 Confederate guns on Seminary Ridge here. But they were powerful, though, and they were driving them back. So Loring, Walthall, French, Claiborne, but especially French, Walthall, and Loring were all subject to this artillery. Nathan Bedford Forrest is trying to go over the river and get around, but he can't because he can't afford it. Ironically, today it's called Forest Crossing, where he was supposed to cross. True story. But that's where he's supposed to go. But they didn't really, they couldn't really make it. Chalmers, the other artillery, <laughs> um, the other conf- uh, cavalry guy, blah. Um, he's trying to go on the left hand side. It's a little bit easier, but he's, they're not getting anywhere anyway. It's around seven o'clock. It's getting, yep. it's getting late. William Bates, another guy in Cheatham's army, he's going to be basically get pushed back. He's going to be a place called Everbright Mansion, mm-hmm. but he's going to fall back as well because, again, there's no cavalry support. So he is taking on – his left flank is supposed to be protected by Chalmers' cal- cavalry Chalmers. division, but it's not, and that's due to the rolling ground and the orchards and as well as – the daylight is what disappearing. Is again? Oh my God. It was in one of the sources I read. <laughs> your source said undulations because you showed me No, this is not the same fucking thing. It's a different page. <laughs> hey, Darren, look, it's at undulations. And that's what you were talking about. So Fucker. point LaRusso. Fucker. I'll send you the actual quote. <laughs> okay, whatever. But anyway, Chalmers, <laughs> yeah, Chalmers. The undulations, okay? Can't get across. Yeah. And it's dark too. Bade is like, well, what am I going to do now? And he said the federal line looked the more grim and angry as the smoke of the battle thickened and the shadows of evening grew. So it's almost like they're going into some kind of hell, which is what a lot of these men start referring to this battle too, because as it gets darker, you're going to see more of the light of the cannons, of the musketry. One guy, Henry Riddick of the First Florida said, our boys began dropping like corn before a hailstorm. Must have been hell on earth for these guys. I mean, just the whole thing. Just picture the cold and the sleet and the yeah, the dark, the dark and the guns. Seven o'clock comes. Stephen D. Lee finally arrives. At least, at least Allegheny's Johnson's division mm-hmm. does arrive, and he's going to move into support on the far on the right. But he gets pinned down on the breastworks pretty quickly. Again, darkness was a huge part of that. I think he made one assault to get his ass kicked and that was off. it. I mean, he's like, then, you know what? This is freaking stupid. And then Bait and Cheatham have to go to him and say dude be careful with your fire because they had men laying down in the ditches at this point so at this point in the battle the men that have made the first part of the assault at around four o'clock some of them are laying in ditches and some of them reported that their clothes became soaked in blood because of the dead men that were lying around them and reddick who the quote i read before he said that they could not go forward or back and they laid there until around 11 o'clock when the battle finally stopped. But some men that were in this, in the first Florida with Riddick, they got up and they like, they just left after about 10 minutes. They were like, fuck this. We're not doing this. And they got cut I, down. So that's what these men are laying in. And that's yeah, why when, yeah. when Lee comes along, like they can't unleash what they need to, because they could hit their own men at this point. And that just goes back to like how, chaotic this battle is and his men were also ordered a man from the 41st mississippi said we were ordered to omit the usual yell so they're not able to do the usual rebel yell that they do conceal our approach under cover of darkness and make a spirited dash for the works and then it's at the very end once they know they're close that they they do their rebel yell because a lot of the union sources in what i read they 
they reported hearing the rebel yell at this battle quite a bit. But Stephen Lee, the general doing this part of the charge, he said it looked as if the division was moving into the very door of hell, lighted up with its sulfurous flames. Wow. That's like a trip over to Mary's house. (laughs) (laughs) Fucker. All seriousness, on all honesty, our words cannot describe how absolutely brutal this battle was. No. And this was, this was, you know, and we mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, you, you think about Civil War ground zero, right? What do you think of? You think of, you think of the cornfields, you Antietam. think of Devil's Den, Antietam, you think of the wheat fields, you, you think of Cold Harbor, right? You, th- you think of the mule's shoe at Spotsylvania, you mm-hmm. think of, but this one is the king. I mean, well, this picture, and this was the last really great battle of the Civil War. This was it. This is the firework display. This was the grand finale of this war. Everything gone. This was it. And when anybody tells you what Civil War battles were that was the single most brutal, the answer is Franklin. And it's it, not even absolutely. close. And that's how and, I and, came away from this. Like, I, I thought, like, okay. Like, I mean, I knew about Franklin, but and I knew it was brutal. But when you start doing the research and you read the quotes of these men, like there was a man from – a soldier from, from Alabama – who said, and this goes right back to what you just said, Darren, you cannot have the slightest imagination of how many men were killed, such a slaughter of men never seen before. And keep in mind that some of these men fighting at Franklin, they fought at Shiloh. They've been in it since the beginning. So you can't imagine like what they've seen. And now they're seeing the worst ever. I mean, this is like the hornet's nest times 10. People talked about, you know, the, the worst hell they've ever seen in their life was at Shiloh. This is, but, but, you know, going back to, one thing I forgot to mention about Forrest real quick. So he's on the far right mm-hmm. and he gets pushed back by Joseph Wilson's dismounted cavalry. It was significant because it was the only time, or they the first time rather, that he got beat by a smaller force in the entire war. Mm-hmm. So even Forrest, he's up against the river and he, he's in a limited space as well. But again, it just goes to show what a complete and utter disaster this this battle was for everybody in the Confederacy. It was and- so chaotic. And I don't think like, you know, sending in Allegheny Johnson's men mm-hmm. was just like, why? Why do that at seven o'clock at night? You know, and a soldier from the 110th Ohio was surprised when he saw more men, like realized they were there. And he said that Johnson's attack was foredoomed to failure. His men served but to increase the heaps of dead and wounded which strewed the field. Like, even the Union at this point are like, what are they doing? Well, well, they know. And while this is going on, Schofield is continuing to develop those bridges, yeah. right? Allegheny Johnson's bails. He gets pushed back. This is what Hood says. You know what? Fuck this. We're done, right? He says he's, he's going to do the whole Sherman thing. We'll, we'll lick him in the morning. That's yeah. what he's going to say. So he stops the offensive attack after Johnson. About 11 o'clock, Thomas orders Schofield to pack him up and get the hell out of Dodge and get mm-hmm. to Nashville, you know? Kenny Chesney's playing up here tonight. Let's let's get we get we get up here tonight. So it gets to Nashville. So they start to leave. What's what's interesting about this battle, right, is tactically by definition, this battle was a Confederate victory, right? Mm-hmm. They drove the Feds off the field. That's yep, and they hold they, they hold Franklin at the end of the day, and they but, hold Franklin. But does anybody honestly think Franklin's a Confederate victory? I I don't know how to think of Franklin. I don't know if I see it as a Union victory or I see it as a Confederate victory. I, like it's absolute slaughter. Confederate Pyrrhic victory, as they say. Yeah. I mean, they they by definition they won because by definition they won the field. They drove the enemy off, but they got their asses kicked. It was a victory that cost them everything. It did. They went for it. You know, Schofield goes off to Nashville. He's going to get there by noon the next day, which is exactly 156 years ago today, around mm-hmm. December 1st. He does link up with Thomas, so his mission is achieved. He is going to get pursued by Hood, but again, you know, not to jump ahead, but Hood attacks again on December 15th at Nashville, gets his ass kicked again, and that's the end. That's it for Hood. Looking back at the aftermath of this battle, we've talked about what the, the citizenry had to deal with at Antietam and at Gettysburg and Vicksburg and all these horrific battles, but Remember, at this battle, right, why the speed was the whole thing. So they, they left most of the wagons behind with the artillery. Mm-hmm. So this wagons included all the medical supplies, right? Yep. There was very few doctors. So now you don't have supplies to deal with the, with the wounded. So the dead and wounded are basically taken over uh, many places, including Carnden House, mm-hmm. um, some churches. Carnden House, and, you know, it has, there's still blood on the floor. At Carnden House, the pile of arms and legs was two men high 
or three Marys high, however you want to look at it. <laughs> and five nine, that five nine times three. It was pretty high. But there's some horrible stories where, you know, it's cold and sleet and mud and it's, 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 they're covering the dead bodies in the battlefield. They found a guy who was alive nine days later, his legs have been shot off and he was still alive and they found him. It's br- and just the cold that settles in, yeah. you know, and the other thing too that happens is, you know, before the fighting stops, there's been so many commanders killed that some of these men are going without their commanders. This happens with Claiborne's men. And I think it happens with States Rats. Jis is killed. It's funny, you can't, I can't say without the accent either. Now it's so funny. States Rats. <laughs> States Rats. But Claiborne's well, men. We'll hear about him later, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, Claiborne's men are are there. The fighting is still going on, and they begin to worry, wonder where he is. And they said, "We kept going over, but they would reinforce and drive us out." So the Union's reinforce driving them back out. And finally, they mm-hmm. decided to keep quiet until Claiborne came along. One of Claiborne's men said, "We waited and waited and waited." And the boys kept crying for word and wondered why he didn't come. But when the orders didn't come, I knew Pat Claiborne was dead. For if he had been living, he would have given us that order. Right there, that's a testament to how loyal his men are to him and what mm-hmm. he meant to them. It's not just happening with Claiborne's, it's happening with with Gist's men as well. Yeah, and we'll, we'll go over the, the, the butcher's bill here in a few minutes. It was just, it was just brutal. But, yeah. but, you know, you talk about just the hell on earth, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know that the Confederates had a bonfire where they burned body parts and wagons and it burned for two weeks Oh God! after this battle, two weeks of burning body parts and wagons. There wasn't a lot of horses because they didn't have many cavalry. Think of hell, right? Yeah. Body parts burning at a bonfire. That's what literally they were doing. But, but as bad as these battles are, and the one consistent thing about civil war battles is there's always kind of goodness that comes out of humanity with these things. It, mm-hmm. It's somehow war and battles brings out the worst and the best of people. Yep. There's that story of a guy named E.M. Bounds. Have you heard of him? E.M. Bounds, he was a pastor from Missouri. Mm-hmm. Okay? He basically had a church in Missouri, which the church was owned or allegedly owned by some Confederates or a Confederate guy. He was not a Confederate. He was one of four, four or five brothers. The other ones were all fighting for the Union. He stayed back because he was a pastor. The Union catches him and accuses him of being a Confederate. So they put him in jail, and they trade him for a Union pastor. So they send him to the Confederate line. What? <laughs> you know where he gets sent? He gets sent to Franklin. So he's at Franklin, and so he's a Union guy helping basically Confederate Missouri people. So he's, he's in Franklin after the battle. He's helping to find, find the rebel dead. He helped set up that Confederate cemetery, which housed at the time 1,500 dead Confederates. Mm-hmm. He helped the town recover. So he was kind of like the, the little the angel of, of the Maurice Heights, sort of, yeah. where he was a guy who was a Union guy who got, mm-hmm. by happenstance, got sent to the Confederacy to help Confederate soldiers. And that's exa- exactly what he did. And so it's just one of those good stories. But, but at the end of the day with this battle, this was the nail in the coffin. I mean, if, if, the, if the Confederacy wasn't dead at this point, I mean, before the battle, it certainly was now. This, this was it. They, were, they yeah. were completely done. Like we said, this was the last hurrah. This was the last big battle. The casualties, you know, well, I know you like to go the casualty numbers because you're a grim sense of humor, but I'll let you, I'll let you go ahead and do that. On the Confederate side, there's 6,252 casualties. Of these, 1,750 are killed 3,800 are wounded and 702 are missing or captured. And on the Union side, there's 2,326, 189 killed, 1,033 wounded. You mentioned 6,200 Confederate casualties. Hood will say 4,500. Yep, Hood downplays. So he, must have sat, he sat next to you in math class. Is what he, <laughs> he did. did. Okay. I was um, helping him with his math exam. You know, you must have been, you must have been sitting to his rise. You know? Just a side note, I was somebody's math tutor once. Oh my goodness gracious! So, well. <laughs> anyway, we'll leave that. Where she is now, but anyway, <laughs> I'm guessing she ain't working for NASA. But, <laughs> but, but you know what? And another thing that's a good what if of these stories too is we always do the what if thing. You know, Arthur MacArthur is. Yep, I do. It's, it's a funny name to say, kind of. He was a guy who was from Springfield, Massachusetts, yep. not far from where I am. Okay, he was part of the 24th Wisconsin. He <laughs> was at Franklin. He was shot in the chest, but yet somehow lived. Mm-hmm. He ended up being the father, Douglas MacArthur, yep. from World War One, World War II in Korea, who was instrumental in those victories. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if old Arthur MacArthur had died at Franklin? 
that's how that's that one of my change history probably one of my favorite right? stories from this battle it's just it's, a, it's like wow that that guy was there fighting it, it, well, he was a he was a baller too you know i mean he was he was, oh, yeah. he was tough, tough he was at guy. missionary ridge as well he was with oh, thomas's men at i think at missionary ridge he was one you know, of i know was charged up there was, Wisconsin claims him, but he's a mass. He's a masshole. He's one of us. He's one of us, Mary. That's why he survived. He was made of steel. You can't kill Arthur MacArthur. He's still alive today. We talked about the death toll for the Confederacy, and you you cannot talk about the rebel dead without talking about the real high generals they lost in this battle. Yeah, okay? states' rights gist. States' rights gist. We he didn't make it. We talked about uh, Otto Strahl didn't make it. Hiram Granberry brutal death out granberry his last words were never let it be said texans lagged in the fight and then he ends up getting shot a couple times one of them is through his head and he crumbles to the ground when that happens john carter he doesn't count as i mean he was morally wounded so you have a total of six dead generals of course the the headliner is you know, I've been dreading bringing this up, Mary, because I know you're going to get emotional. I, you know, I, I was going to play some sad music for you, but we have to talk about Patrick Claiborne because Patrick Claiborne, unfortunately, mentioned this, he is killed in this battle. We've talked about how both of us have a, definitely an admiration for him mm-hmm. as far as probably, in my opinion, he was the best general on the field at Chattanooga, probably the best general on the field here. Yep. And he's a guy, when you look at the bigger picture, how this battle never should have happened, mm-hmm. it made no sense. And the reason why I say, that, to go back to this real quick, before we get to Claiborne, 2020 hindsight being our benefactor, we know now that Sherman did his march to the sea and he lived off the land. Yep. He did not need the supplies. So Hood going to Nashville to cut Sherman's supply line was completely irrelevant. It did yep. not matter. Now, there was a lot that went into it beyond that. He wanted to, you know, Hood, you know, Hood being aggressive and all that. I guess people think it's overrated a little bit, but you cannot deny the human psychology of this in the military. Mm-hmm. But they basically went to stop a supply line that did not matter, yep. right? In a cost in the life of a guy named Patrick Claiborne. Now, I know he's a big, you're a big fan of his, so I'm just going to yep. sit back and I'm going to watch you get misty. <laughs> um, as you put on, as you put on your black shawl and, and start to, <laughs> as I said in last week's episode, the reason I got into Claiborne is because of Missionary Ridge and what he did to Sherman. There, I admire him very much as a soldier, as you know, a commander, a guy who comes over from Ireland and no West Point education, and he rises through the ranks. And unfortunately, he never gets chosen for command. I believe it's because of his emancipation that he wrote to put slaves in the Confederate Army. I don't think it was anything to do with the fact that he was Irish or not West Point educated. I think he had the talent to be a commander of an army and he was just passed over because of that emancipation. Do I agree with his reasons for fighting? Like, absolutely not. But I do believe the one thing that Claiborne would have been after the Civil War is like a long street. He would have come around and he would have, I think, realized, you know, yeah, we need to be unified again. And this is truly not going to happen. It is a lost cause. Because if you read any biography about Claiborne, he actually is a very accepting individual. He was a Protestant or Episcopalian, I guess I should say for (laughs) the Irish out there, but he starts with a P. I found out last night. (laughs) He knew what kind of you know, prejudice the, the Catholics experienced in America, and he didn't agree with that at all. So he's a very different type of, I think, person to study in the Confederate Army. He raises a lot of questions, and that's why why I like him. And, and too, just like he was a kind person, and, and also he's a very talented soldier. But the one thing that I want to, we want to talk about is when he was found on the battlefield. He had brutal death. I mean, this is, in, yeah. he's fighting, you know, against the 23rd and the 4th Corps, divisions of them. He's had two horses shot from under him. Finally, he just, bait, when he's trying to climb into the saddle and the horse gets shot, yeah. finally, he just, he's going to, he's going to yep. go without. Govan so, sees he, him, basically, the last image Govan has of him is running off through the smoke and he never sees him again. And the next that we hear of Patrick Claiborne is from a man named John McQuaid, who was one of the ones that found his body the next day. And this is what he had to say. He lay flat upon his back as if asleep, his military cap partly covering his eyes. He had on a new gray uniform. It was unbuttoned and opened, the lower part of the vest unbuttoned and open. He wore a white linen shirt, which was stained with blood on the front part of the left side or just left of the abdomen. This was the only sign of a wound I saw on him, and I believe it was the only one he received. And then after that, 
Claiborne's body is taken and laid out at Carnton with the other generals that had been, been killed there. Now Claiborne is without his boots. They'd been taken without his sword. So what happened was they basically, his body was found. He, he was, all of his valuables were gone. You mentioned his boots were gone, his valuables, his, his sword, some other stuff. He was found by a couple of Mississippi soldiers. And you mentioned before, right at dawn. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this is he was found on his back with his hands across his chest, like he was sleeping. Now, what's interesting, and we got talking about this last night. Chances are, and we just just speculating, okay, was they've some some soldiers found his body. Oh, look, boots, sword, grabbing, and just went through, ruffled through his body. Somebody found his body, recognized who he was, and laid him out that way for a specific reason. Mm-hmm. So, why in the world, Mary? And I'll quiz to you. Why would someone on the other side of the army, which is what it would have been from the night before, before they skedaddled off to Nashville, why would someone take care of someone on the other side in that manner? Because he's like Lytle. He was a Mason. He was a Mason. Exactly. So when you take a peek at Patrick Claiborne, you have to look at Freemasonry here. And this is, again, this is not written anywhere. This is just speculation. Now, I will tell you in disclosure, I am a Freemason. So I understand a lot of this stuff. Every one of the division commanders in Cheatham's army with Patrick Claiborne, Brown, Bate, including Cheatham and Hood, were all Freemasons, as was Allegheny Johnson, Carter Stevenson, Henry Clayton, William Loring, Samuel French, Edward Walthall. They all were. These guys were all Masons. The soldiers who attacked him, okay, this is back on Schofield, right? This is Thomas Ruger and James Riley. They were all Masons. Okay, I think what happened was Somebody recognized Claiborne. We're going to talk about Claiborne here in a second. His details with Freemasonry. They recognize him as a Mason. Mm-hmm. So here, why would they? Patrick Claiborne, in 1852, was raised as a Master Mason in Helena, Arkansas, in 1852. He was a leader in his lodge. He was, lack of, he was elected the Master of his lodge in 1853. He was given a Royal Arch Mason degree and was conducted by none, none other than Albert Pike, who was also from Arkansas. So if you have Albert Pike coming to do one of your degrees, you're, you're big time. That's just the way it was. Claiborne gave a keynote speech at the annual convention of the Arkansas and Mississippi Freemasons. My own opinion, opinion, not fact. So mm-hmm. it's probably a fact. I think some soldiers recognized Claiborne for who he was. And they think they were Masons. Very similar to the Bingham story with Armistead. Yep. And they laid him out hoping that somebody would give him, give him a Masonic funeral. Mm-hmm. because the way he was laid if anybody's a freemason knows that's a very masonic way he was laid out yeah and he was body was eventually taken to the carnton house mm-hmm. and it was eventually buried and his body bounced around a little bit but i think some union guys recognized him as that as a member of the craft and they took care of him mm-hmm. the one thing you and i were talking about today was the wound he received there are some reports that say it was right through the heart but there's some that was through the abdomen and you had mentioned that if it had been through the abdomen he would have bled out so there very well could have been union men there with him or somebody with him when he died. And he was able to tell them I'm a Mason. Well, there's a story. Says, I think you read it earlier that he was shot through the heart. Yeah. You, the higher you are, the, the less painful death you're going to get. Right. Yeah. Because he was shot. Through. The bullet wound is in his abdomen. So mm-hmm. it would have taken him hours probably to bleed out. He would have, that would not have been a good death for him. So I'm, I bet you, you're, to your point, Mary, I think you're absolutely right. I think he had people with him, and I think they took care of him. I do think some people got to him. And, they would not have stolen his boots and laid him out. Somebody found his body, probably disheveled, and they, they cleaned him up and laid him out a certain way. Yeah. Hoping that his troops would eventually come and get him, find him, and take care of him. Yeah. That's just, that's just, it, just, it just makes me too, way too much sense. Knowing too much of the stuff. It makes, it makes a lot of sense that that's how it was because he was mm-hmm. that highly thought of in that, in that world. Yeah, this is, again, this is an opinion thing. It's not fact, but Simmons does write about Claiborne being a Mason in his biography of Patrick Claiborne called Stonewall of the West. So it is written about, about him being a Mason and him being very high up in the order. Now, we are going to do an episode at some point with our friend Bill who is a Freemason who's in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. He does a presentation on Gettysburg uh, Civil War uh, Freemasons. We'll have him on. But this is a very underreported Freemason story because if you know all the details of this, there is no doubt this is very similar to the Armistead story. And I've not heard the story, Mary. I've not seen anyone talk about this, but it seems it makes way too much sense. It's just, oh, just, yeah. just the way it was. It makes way too much sense. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And 
I think it's good that we're discussing this. As we move forward doing these battles, this could be something that we look for is, is kind of these Mason elements that happen. I mean, it happens in the March of the Sea. You're going to see that in your reading Southern Storm right now, right? So yep. there's definitely mention of Freemasons in that. It's like Lytle at Chickamauga. He was a Freemason and it's Confederate men who protect his body. So there is a definite brotherhood that goes above this fighting that it's suddenly like, this is not the enemy. This is a brother and we have to look after him. And this is clearly what has happened with Claiborne as well. And plus he was very high up too. Like he had to be known. He, he went, went very far, very quickly. So if he's a Royal Arch, fifth degree in the York, right? He would have moved along pretty quickly. But again, it just goes to show what he could have been, to your point, what he could have been if this battle never happened, which realistically, you know, I don't care. It never should have happened. It mm-hmm. shouldn't have. It was just stupid. It was, a, it was an unnecessary waste of a lot of human life on yeah. both sides for nothing. But what he could have become, I think you're absolutely right. He would have been like a Longstreet or a Mosby, someone who probably would have helped in the, with the uh, restoration of the unit afterwards. Yeah. He was still he only 36 when he died. Mm-hmm. So he would have been 37 when the war ended. So he had yeah. his whole life ahead of him. Yeah. And, and so, he yeah, left behind so, a fiance. He did. He did. Sue we Tarleton. talked about her. Yeah, Sue we Tarleton. Her. He met her at Hardy's wedding maybe a year prior to this, and he left her behind. She ended up marrying another Confederate. He was a captain in the Confederate Army, but she died less than a year after that. But she went into a, to mourning for a year after Claiborne died. So that's another kind of human side of this is like he's a guy that had like he had a fiance. He was planning to have a life with her and his life, you know, whether you're Union or Confederate, it's cut short. The guy that he's probably one of the bigger what ifs in the Civil War. What could he have helped do for Reconstruction? He very easily could have fought for the Union. I mean, he fought for his. He landed in Arkansas from Ireland. He that's where he fought because that's where he went. Well, he landed. He, he lived in Ohio. For, Ohio, right? But yeah, but, yeah, but he but, but Arkansas, Arkansas is what kind of claims him. And exactly, really, and that's because of the Mason thing, I think. Right. Like like that. But quote if he, I if today he stayed from, in Ohio or he moved to Mass or Vermont or somewhere and just stayed yeah. there instead. Who knows how it would have been. And you know what? Yes, he's a Confederate. No one justifies the cause we're fighting for. But at some point, you got to look at the fact that it's a, it's a human who was killed, who had probably had a lot of promise, who probably would have done a lot of good things for yeah. the whole civil worker here in the United States. Yeah. And he had brothers um, and half-siblings, because his father actually remarried after his mother died, who lived in Wisconsin, and they fought for the Union. And he lived in Ohio. And I think the only reason he fought for Arkansas was because he in Helena, he finally found his home. And it was especially after he became a Freemason. Yeah. That's what I took away from reading Simmons' biography about him, was that just this, he found a place to call home. He didn't really have an opinion on slavery at all, other than his like order to emancipate them. I see him as being very separate from somebody like Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee. He's... No, I, he was fighting for his team to win is what he was fighting for. Yeah. I mean, based on his Emancipation Proclamation he wrote that didn't come out till later, he realized what needed to be done for his side to win. And they just yep. did, it was that quote about if we, if we arm our slaves, what are we fighting for? We, whatever that, that, that phrase was. Yep. But I think he's, but he's a guy who probably had a big future. So it's just really too bad. But there's a lot of people, those other, those other five guys, those generals who died. Mm-hmm. But all, also, the sol- also, all the soldiers you know? that are cut down too. Like how many soldiers' lives are ended at this battle? I agree with you. It didn't need to happen. And I know could he definitely, he writes about the remorse he feels after the battle. But then somebody that's with him writes that General Hood stopped close to where I was standing and took a long retrospective view of the arena of the awful contest. His sturdy visage assumed a melancholy appearance. And for a considerable time, he sat on his horse and wept like a child. Even he is seeing what has happened. And I'm sure he carried that with him for the rest of his life. Or himself. Yeah, exactly. Right. As his friend, Sherman, they later became friends. Yeah. Which is crazy after those like SMD letters they write each other in Atlanta. It's, it's funny how life is, but but I think at the end of the day, you know, I think people need to study Franklin for more of what it is, which is just you know, it's 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 just a it's just a butcher shop of a battle, and it wasn't like they were fighting for any sort of a major strategic point or no. anything like that. They were fighting for the sake of killing at that point, and it was just over the top, over and over frontal assaults, back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. That led to nothing. He compounds it by doing the same thing in Nashville to a lesser degree. Again, the war was over at that point. Yeah. And whether Nashville was captured or not, Sherman was going to do his thing. We were saying before about what Hood should have done. Sniping at Sherman's backside probably wouldn't have been a, the best idea. I still wonder what would happen if they somehow if they got him and had him march diagonally towards Virginia. 
to try to yep. hook up with Lee somewhere. And maybe that would be a little better tactic, maybe. Yep. But again, that's, again, hindsight being our benefactor with this. We have no idea. Yep. But yeah. don't, under, don't underestimate Hood's psychological desire to, to basically redeem himself for Atlanta. And yeah. people will deny that, but I'm sorry. There's, there's, a, there's too much to that. Yeah. He, he, he wanted to win because he lost. He, lost, he knows he lost Atlanta. And this was his redemption. Him taking it Nashville would have been in his mind a redemption. He just went at it too hard and it was just too bad. Yep. And I think Claiborne had the same thing in his mind. He was like, God, I fucked up at Spring Hill. My men are not like this. And I think he felt it was like an insult to his men who had fought so hard for so long. I think he was a scapegoat in this case. Cheatham's men were like him and Brown were the scapegoats in this for mm-hmm. Spring Hill. And Claiborne just felt he had had to prove himself. But just to see, like, you know, the loyalty of his men, how they're like, we knew he wasn't coming back. Like, it was just absolute carnage. And I think you see that when you visit the battlefield. From from what I've heard about various people on Twitter, go to the Carter House, which is where actually there was Todd Carter was fighting at the Battle of Franklin. He dies in his own bedroom a few days after this battle at the Carter House. It's awful. It's which almost you can like now a... go see, and it's riddled with bullet holes. You can see daylight yep. through it. Like, the awesome thing about like where the battlefield is, is there's the Battle of Franklin Trust, which has done an incredible amount of preservation. And I know they've worked with battlefields on this as well. But the site where Patrick Claiborne was killed used to be a pizza hut of all places. That has since been torn down. And now there is a marker there for his where he fell, which I think is quite appropriate to have that. And there's been a lot of preservation work. So Battle of Franklin Trust is definitely something since it's Giving Tuesday that you can join. Help yeah, and it's unlike a lot of the battlefields, you know, it's not a national military park. It's, it's, a, it's so they're not guaranteed they're not guaranteed federal funds not. like Gettysburg or Antietam or these places. It's similar to a it's a bigger version of Kernstown, which is mm-hmm. a privately owned place. So if you're looking today's giving Tuesday here, yep. I know it, this will drop on Saturday, but if you need some you have some money to drop, yep. split your money between the American Battlefield Trust and throw some money at, at the Franklin Trust too. Because yeah. you know something, these, these places are going to go away eventually unless the money's put into them. And, yeah. so, and Franklin any, any, to me is just as important of, of a battle as Gettysburg. You know, like it, it needs to be, like it, the story needs to be told. And I have to say the story this year, uh, just on Twitter alone, was amazing to see it being told. So I got to say like, thank you to Homebrew History, which is another history podcast. Like they did a really great job of telling the story of the, not just the Battle of Franklin, but the Franklin Nashville campaign. And they were, they were really awesome. They tagged us in those tweets so we would be able to see them and, you know, kind of help them out and, and retweet them with that too. So that's really awesome that they, they did that. So, so kudos to them for doing that and kind of making this battle more of awareness to it. I appreciate battlefields. You know, all battlefields matter. They yeah. really do. American Battlefield Trust did an awesome job with Franklin as well with, with tweeting about it. It was really great to see the coverage this year of it. And we need to thank the Battlefield Trust, Mary, because they gave us gear this week. They, they gave did. Us li- license plate covers, license plate and covers today. And I, I put mine on the other day. So thank you so much, the American yep. Battlefield Trust, for hooking us up. It's already on my car, so it's great to do that. I know yep. you were glad to give her that horrific Ohio State one. I went out there on Saturday morning before I live and did that. It felt so good to do that and get rid of that off my car. And That's good to get rid of that. But yeah, like I can, I'm probably the only person in Ontario driving around with an American Battlefield's license plate holder on my car. With four inches of snow on your roof too. So that's another thing. Yeah, that was my morning. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so moving on to future coming attractions like we always do, Mary. Yep. So we'll again, we'll be doing our Facebook Live at mm-hmm. 10 o'clock in the morning next Saturday, which is always a lot yep. of fun. Um, hopefully there's no technical difficulties. I'm not sitting in my driveway in front of my garage again. And hopefully your internet is a little bit better off and your AOL.com dial-up. Hopefully you got that going again. And then next week, what are we doing next week, Mary? Are we doing our Christmas episode? Or are I we think doing we're doing our, I, I thought we were doing our Civil War Breakfast Club Christmas Spectacular. I think we are, yep. Our, our Santa Claus episode. We will talk about that. So we'll decide for sure, but there's good things coming down the pike. I believe yep. that's what we're doing. So we will talk at, the, at our Civil War Breakfast Club World Headquarters and decide <laughs> what the best option is to do. So anyway, Mary, it's um, Franklin was a it was a good thing, a good discussion, I thought. It was a yep. good history discussion. Had some fun. Everyone, thanks for watching and thanks for listening and do all that good stuff. And definitely join our live. We'll talk about this. I'm sure we'll have some people talking about uh, about Franklin. There's a lot of people who watch us uh, on the live who jump on board who, who appreciate Franklin as well. So anyway, thank you to all of our listeners for listening and those of us who join us on our live. We will be doing our roundtable again in December. I believe it is two weeks from tomorrow. 
third Wednesday of every month, we are doing yep. our round table from six to seven. Yeah. Six to seven. Six to, okay. Six to seven. So that's yep. a couple weeks down the road. So yep. set your, um, wake the neighbors, tell the kids, let everybody know <laughs> that we'll be doing it. So, but in the meantime, Mary, always a pleasure. Hopefully uh, the snow melts. Hopefully you can get to work tomorrow. I'll um, be the first be time in like five days or six days you'll be back <laughs> to work. So, so, so. That Dairy Queen and Kim Carden's missing you outside. I know. Right <laughs> it is. <laughs> Good. Anyway, so thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. We appreciate it. So, again, um, check us out on, on our live, and we appreciate all the fun we have on social media with everybody. And we will definitely look forward, Mary, to you and everybody else talking to you on the other side as we put a bow on this one. <laughs> See you guys later. Hey. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs>